0: Good evening, listeners. This is Michael Martins, your host at the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting tonight under a star-studded sky in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In tonight's episode, we return our attention to the Skeena River watershed to discuss a variety of topics. Tonight's guest is Mr. Brian Niska, head guide at the Skeena Spay Riverside Wilderness Lodge in Terrace, BC. Brian is a lifelong angler with 27 years of fly fishing experience, with 18 of those years spent as a professional fly fishing guide. Brian has participated in the fly fishing business for over 20 years in a variety of capacities. He is credited as the designer and creator of the Way metal detector rod series, and has worked in fly shops, and has been a commercial fly tyre and an instructor of casting, fly fishing, and fly tying courses. Brian is certified as both a master casting instructor and two-handed casting instructor with the Federation of Fly Fishers. Brian has been a strong advocate of habitat restoration work to support wild fish populations and he is dedicated to the preservation of wild fish and the pristine ecosystems essential to their survival. Brian, thank you for your time this evening and welcome to the show. Hey Mike, thanks for having me. Very good. Uh, So to start off with Brian, why don't uh, you share with the listeners uh, the origins of your passion for the outdoors and fly fishing in particular?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think, as far back as I can remember, so I'm 47 now, I think I started fly fishing when I was 12, but fishing's just always been something that, that I did. Um, I don't come from a particularly fishy family. I mean, my parents made sure that I had access to go fishing and while they enjoyed it, it, was, uh, it, it didn't really consume them much in the, the way it did myself. Um, however, good parents will always let you run with it. So I got my first fly rod at 12 and haven't really looked back And, uh, you know, like, like any fool would try and make a career out of something that you love doing. And, you know, I think if I I was to be honest with myself about it, I would say that I I don't really have any regrets, but at the same time, I, you know, I probably don't, don't fish as much these days as, as I would, if I wasn't involved in a professional capacity. Um, but all, all things being equal, I, you know, I, I, really do believe that this is a, a good industry. I, I do believe that there's value, both social, economic, social and economic value, um, in in having people out there fishing. And uh, you know, certainly I've put a few thousand people on the water in my, my tenure as a guide and instructor. And um, you know, well, well, on some hand, that's more more lines in the water. Hopefully, it's more people who who give a darn about the environment. And uh, I, I think that overall you know, the more friends that fish have, the, the better place we'll be in. So, so for myself, you know, looking back on it, it was just a natural thing to become a fishing guide. It was a natural thing to, to, to want to help people, you know, understand more about casting, more about fishing and, and appreciate the, the natural environment.
0: Excellent, and uh, so that's interesting because this um, uh, begins to solidify my belief that there's actually uh, a gene which causes you to fish. Because uh, I, I'm similar to you, uh, there wasn't a really big uh, fishing uh, flavor in my family either, and uh, I'm, I'm like yourself. I mean, twelve, thirteen years old took up uh, fly fishing, fly tying, and uh, it's been it's been a mad uh, whirl ever since. So, and so, Brian, what is it about being on the water for you that uh, captivates your attention? And, has uh, uh, generated this career for you?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's anticipation. It's, it's the potential. And, you know, I think the period leading up to hitting the water is is equally important as when you first get there. Um, you know, it's kind of like the night before Christmas, I guess, when you're going fishing. And, you know, I, I, there's many different ways to access the river. You know, people, some people fly around helicopters, uh, most of our clients are going up and down the river in jet boats. Sometimes we float smaller stuff, uh, but I think the the best scenario is when you walk into a run and, you know, you get through the the trail and the trees and things open up and and whether, you know, whether it's a canyon pool that you've hiked into, heck, it could be a lake. You know, I just I just think the approach to the water and the anticipation that goes with it is is really the the juice here, and if you truly enjoy the act of fishing you know the meditative quality of it and you know the, the cliche thing of just being out there you, the, the actual catching of the fish can be somewhat anticlimactic. but you know when you're out there I think the, the big thing for me is just time tends to roll slightly different than it does when you're doing other stuff and you know sometimes it's faster sometimes it's slower but it's, it's just always different and you just kind of get lost in your thoughts sometimes and when you feel that you're fishing in a productive way, when you've made a game plan, you looked at the water, you said, okay, this is how I'm going to approach this. You stick to that game plan. You get in the zone, you're just fishing away. And it really feels like you're about to get one. It really feels fishy out, you know, whatever that means to you. Then regardless of whether something grabs the line or not, you know, it, it's, it's it's a positive experience. And every now and again, something will grab the line and, and you're validated. So. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's the anticipation of, of not knowing unless you go, and you know certainly it's a good excuse to get up early in the morning.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And so, are those the the sort of core reasons that attracted you to your current uh, career path?
1: Hmm. Good question. You know, I was um, let's see, I was, I was convinced I was going to be a pro skier, which is kind of funny now thinking back on it. But you know, it was sort of the the dream job, but I, fishing was something I was going to do the rest of the, the time. So I was, um, let's see, I think if I was to to really think back, the, the first time I could consider myself a professional in the industry would be as a commercial fly tire, which is pretty funny because I barely ever tie a fly these days. Um, but that was a kid just trying to earn a few bucks, you know, selling flies to the tackle shop and then obviously they sell them to their, their clients. Um then I was teaching skiing in the winters and um, started guiding, uh, guiding on the Harrison, guiding on the Fraser, uh, went, went to Chile. That was kind of neat. Um, moved to Whistler, guided in Whistler, guided in Squamish, uh, did some stuff up here in a Country. And, you know, it, 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 I suppose to do that initially, you have to have something else going on. I mean, heck, I. I Mike, I sold vacuums at one point in my life, this is true, but, um, you know, you have other things because it's tough to do this full time, but if there's something you enjoy more than the rest of it, you're always kind of trying to angle towards, uh, you know, being able to do it full time. So, you know, I sort of had this this bizarre idea that what I wanted to do was to have a, a tackle shop, a guide service, and a fly fishing school. And then the natural extension of that would be to take people on hosted trips. Now, this is not a unique vision or business plan. There's many that have done this before me. Uh, Locally, I could say that this is pretty much exactly what Mike and Denise Maxwell were doing a long, long time ago, but timing is everything. And, you know, it kind of worked out for us in the sense that Whistler um, was known as a place to go lake fishing But Squamish is just down the road. And and Squamish has tremendous river fishing. Pemberton's got some great opportunities. And, um, you know, float tubing on the local Whistler Lakes was very popular. You know, pays the bills, same as the other stuff. But, you know, we really wanted to be on the river. So turning what was a summer job into a year round job was, was really dependent on convincing people that they want to go fishing in the winter, right? So, you know, eventually got out of teaching skiing, uh, skied recreationally, fished professionally. And, uh, you know, what we found is that the business in Whistler over time went from being a July, August, a little bit of September thing to, to literally 12 months of the year. And that most of our repeat clientele and the people that were coming specifically to fish with us would, would, would come in February, March, April. You know, they'd, they'd want to fish for for bull trout, they'd want to fish for steelhead. Didn't catch a lot of fish, but they enjoyed the experience and fished some nice water. And over, you know, 12 years of doing this, developed a, a decent amount of uh, clientele and started to do a, a fair amount of hosted travel and ended up sort of transitioning hosted travel into to the current, current thing of, of living here year round on the Skeena and, uh, and running the fishing
0: lodge. Yeah, fantastic. That's uh, that's a great story. Uh, interesting that you mention uh, Mike and Denise Maxwell because uh, it was uh, those two that uh, taught me how to uh, cast, and I, I bought my first uh, premium fly rod from them. It was a GT Forty Tiger, I think, which I uh, have since retired, but it served me for probably about twenty years. It was a fabulous uh, piece of equipment. Uh,
1: Kennedy Fisher Blank, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So, uh, Brian, um, why is preserving pa- public access uh, so important uh, for the quality of our fisheries or the integrity of our fisheries? Uh,
1: we're going to get right into it, I like it. Um, you know, a lot of times when people, people sort of dip their feet into fish politics, the, the first thing on their mind is, you know, what's, what am I going to be able to take out of it? You know, what are we fighting for? And, you know, you hear this a lot, people say oh, well, we all want the same thing. We all want more fish. And that's probably true. You know, I don't think anyone wants less fish coming back. But if, if we were to, to sort of hyper-focus on steelhead for a moment, because steelhead's kind of a, a unique scenario, because if you're fishing for wild steelhead, there, there there's no uh, intention of being able to take fish. What's left is can we go fishing? And, you know, there's a lot of different stuff going on out there right now when it comes to... Um, Fisheries management and and you know how they either allow or encourage anglers to, to access the water or prohibit them from fishing entirely. And what I guess where I'm going with all this is if we have a scenario where they have a, a low run forecast for salmon, we're talking about uh, federally. So for those that are listening, this is a key point. Uh, salmon are managed federally by Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and everything else, trout. Char, steelhead—that those are provincial fish. So you have two, two different governing bodies that overlap at certain times of the year. And where things get a little bit goofy would be, uh, you know, a scenario where you have, you know, sections of the Skeena say closed to salmon fishing, but. You can still fish for steelhead because you can selectively target steelhead when chinook are running, uh, much in the same way, Mike, that if uh, if you're trout fishing on a, a stream and there's spawning salmon present, you can avoid those salmon. Uh, it's called a dry fly, and uh, you know you should still be able to go fishing. And unfortunately, the political climate we're in today is is one where Department of Fisheries and Oceans uh, tends to encourage the province to to now prohibit all access, prohibit trout. Which are steelhead anglers from fishing when they have deemed that there's not enough salmon for a, you know, a, let's call it a recreational opening. I'm I, I really not a huge fan of the term sport fishing. Uh, soccer's a sport. Football's a sport. I think of fishing as more of a, a recreational pastime. So, you know, the the thing where we are today that is probably most troubling, and I'm glad you brought it up right away, gives us lots of time to talk about it, is when The argument gets put forth that hey there's not a lot of fish out there you guys aren't going to be able to to catch and kill fish so we're going to close the fishery meaning you're not going to be able to go fishing meaning you've lost your public access and i guess what i personally would love to see and hopefully i'm not alone and and this this goes on both the federal and the provincial side but i'm probably speaking more to dfo at this moment is is a scenario where if there's not a conservation concern meaning if, if people are still gonna be able to go fishing, uh, the baseline should be that we have confidence that we'll be able to go and catch and release fish. And if there's concerns about catch and release mortality, which you know, there should be, there's catch and release mortality is a real thing. And it's, it's important as anglers that we're always working towards minimizing our catch and release mortality, which can be done in a variety of ways, not the least of which is catching less fish then we could look at certain conservation-based tackle restrictions as as an example. So if we're fishing with the intention of letting fish go, it makes a ton of sense to not be able to use bait. If we're fishing with the intention of letting fish go, it makes a ton of sense to to not allow people to pull plugs from from boats on sections where fish are stacked up. Things like that. Basically anything that's going to cause people to have to work harder to catch a fish. Because what we're trying to do is minimize our impact. Maybe there's a concern, there's not a lot of fish. We still want to be able to go fishing. It's important to do. If there's not a lot of fish, the recreational anglers aren't going to catch a lot of fish. Therefore, their impact's going to be minimal. Um, so, by taking this group of anglers off the water, you know, with, with the goal of somehow protecting the fish, you know, you're going to lose something. And I'm going to come to that in a second. But I wanna step back to where I started with this, which is, is this idea of abundance-based management. And what I mean by that is, okay, so the baseline is you have the confidence you're gonna be able to go fishing. Book your vacation time if you're a tourist, um, you know, plan your flight, you know, hire a guide, whatever it is you're doing, but, but go with the confidence that the government that's managing the fishery wants you to be able to fish, wants you to be able to access the river. Now, if there's a lot of fish, Maybe that you're allowed to take a salmon. If it's still head fishing, of course, it's all catch and release. We just discussed that. But if it's in the, the, the salmon side, you know, maybe you're going to be allowed one, sh- one chinook a month. Maybe it's one a year. Maybe it's one a day. But, but whatever it is, it should be based on the, the run size estimate. And when it comes down to the, this idea of, you know, how we divvy up the pot, you know, there's, there's a lot out there right now being discussed um, about uh, in the ocean killer whales. Um, obviously indigenous groups have concerns about recreational uh, fishers harvest levels. And I suppose, suppose the, the easiest way for me to to, to sort of understand that is if I look at my back of my provincial fishing license, it says I can keep tension of a year. Now, I don't do that, but that, that doesn't allow any any wiggle room for a year with a lot of Chinook or a year with not a lot of Chinook. So, you know, if, if you're, let, let, let's say uh, if you're an indigenous group that's further up the Skeena River system and, and you're worried that you're not gonna get your fish because all these recreational guys are out there and you know that legally they're allowed, you know, 10 fish, 10 Chinook each a year. Hey man, I, I can understand why people might be concerned about having a fishery proceed. So in order to build confidence with all stakeholder groups, um, I think we, see, we need measures in place that enable us to access the river, but at the same time will help limit our impact so it's relative to the amount of fish that are there. So, you know, the issue with DFO today is it feels like their primary focus is, is somehow putting together commercial openings. Maybe I'm wrong on that. It's just what it feels like to me. And then everything that happens after that is, is kind of what's left. And I, I suppose since commercial fishing takes place primarily in the marine environment or the lower approaches of the river, you know, maybe that should be the priority. I don't know. But it doesn't make a lot of sense to close in-river recreational fishing when the, uh, the actual impact is so low. And, and the upside is that you're missing out on is, is so high. I've got, a, I've got a study here with me. Today, that was done a few years back. It was done by a company called Big River Analytics, and it uh, it, it basically had a look at the economic impact of the the, the guiding that takes place on the Lower Skina, primarily around Terrace, and and specifically to Chinook and Steelhead. And what the study found out, I'm just gonna just gonna pull it up here for a second, make sure I don't wash the numbers. I know it's handy. Um, what what the study found out is that each Chinook salmon is generating thirty-five thousand, just over thirty-five thousand dollars worth of economic impact to the local community.
0: So that's 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 per fish, Brian. That's per fish. Okay. Now the
1: reason that number is so high is, is a because most of the guiding is, is fly fishing and fly fishers don't catch a lot of fish. Um, also, a lot of the guiding's catch and release. So, you know, they, they used a a catch and release mortality rate of ten percent which, by the way, is higher than the best science of the day. The best science of the day uh, says we're going to be somewhere between 5 and 7% with all tackle and, and potentially less than 5% in a, in a scenario with a bait ban. Uh, $35,780 was the actual figure they came up with. Now, I don't think that, you know, if you look at a, a commercially caught Chinook salmon or or maybe even one in a fancy lodge in the ocean. I don't think you can touch those numbers on an individual fish basis. And it's because the in-river recreational fishery, A, doesn't take a lot of fish. B, is, is very um, in tune with this idea of, of releasing your catch. And because a lot of people are fly fishing, they're just not that effective. So you know, even, even in periods of, of abundance, they don't catch a ton of fish. And uh, jumping around a bit here, but just because I have it open in front of me, the, the number for steelhead, so steelhead season on the on the Skeena system, let's call it five months. Maybe it's less than that, but let's call it five months. And in that five months, the, uh, the, the lodge slash guide component of the fishery will generate uh, just slightly more than $10 million of economic impact.
0: And so do they have that broken down uh, per fish as they do with the Chinook? Uh,
1: you know what? I, I don't have that it's not on the summary here. It's, it's in the larger form. I can, uh, for your own interest, I can send you the, the, the paper. Sure. They'd be interested out of there. Um, my suspicion is it's going to be similar to Chinook perhaps slightly lower because Chinook are harder to catch than steelhead. Um, that, but that being said, you know, there are some of the, the Chinook that are accounted <laughs> for in that study because there are some lodges that take fish. So that, that 35,000 takes into a, Per fish, you know that's your 10% catch-release mortality, but also fish that were confirmed as taken. So when they did this study, what they did is they uh, they took all of the the guides in the Skeena Angling Guides Association's financials for like four years or something, uh, had a look at that, and then they also had a look at our creel survey data. So this is the stuff that we're we're duty bound to provide to the province. You know every day when the anglers come back, we keep track of what they caught, and and they 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 had a look at how many Chinook were caught versus how much money was, was, was uh, paid for the people that were paid by the people that were coming to catch them. Now, this is the guided component. And what, what is a bit of a black hole for information right now is, is how much money comes out of the unguided part of the, the, the the summertime salmon fishery, specifically Chinook. Right. And there was a time when not that long ago when Terrace had four tackle shops. Now we're down to, to literally one, um, the in-river fishery is also the fishery that is the most accessible. And what I mean by that is if, if you're a, you know, a casual angler, you can go down and bar fish, sit in a lawn chair and bring your kids and have a great time. You don't need a $250,000 ocean boat to do this. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a really important fishery for the, the residents. It's also an important fishery from a tourism standpoint and you know, there's a. It's not, just, it's not just lodges, it's not just tackle shops, it's hotels, it's restaurants, grocery stores, gas, rental cars, the list goes on. It, literally, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a business that isn't touched one way or the other when you have a closed fishery. Now, consumer confidence is huge. Imagine you go to Disneyland, you get there and the gates to the Magic Kingdom are shut you know you've got folks in the past couple of years who've traveled here to go fishing and then department of fisheries and oceans you know decides on a whim they're going to close the fishery and you've got folks who've made their way here from europe or wherever now obviously we're in, we're in covid times so it's it's domestic people that are here but you know the important thing to to take home with this is is this idea that a large percentage of the anglers plan their trips well in advance and if they're concerned about rivers being closed for no good reason, just as they're about to get here, they're not gonna come here. They're gonna to go to Alaska. You know, if, they're, if they're, especially if they're Americans, they're gonna to go to Alaska. And if, you know, if BC is this world-class fishery, especially on the steelhead side, and we're trying to go head to head with places like Iceland, Norway, uh, Russia, you know, w- we really need to, to get our stick on the ice when it comes to consumer confidence and, and, and how we protect access. And once I, uh, I go
0: ahead. Sorry. Man, sorry. I think, yeah, I think I think one of the important things of that uh, that economic opportunity is that it's also uh, divided amongst the community, and it's not being funneled like the commercial fishery into specific companies that really have very little community benefit. Um, I think that's an important distinction to make as well.
1: Dude, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it like I said, it touches everybody. I think there's, by my last count, there was somewhere between 23 and 30 uh, guide licenses on the lower Skeena. Uh, not everybody operates a lodge, but there's, there's probably close to 20 lodges. Um, you know, then you've got all the individual anglers, then you got the resident anglers. It's, it's an important fishery. And Department of Fisheries and Oceans has been very quick to, to shut these, these freshwater anglers out uh, in favor of, of keeping fisheries in the marine environment open, uh, maintaining access for other stakeholder groups and it's ironic really that the group that the group that has the lowest catch release mortality which is which is the river fishery the group that is satisfied with less fish you know you're you're regardless of whether you're bar fisherman or fly fisherman if you're fishing in the river you're not take you're not having a, a huge impact and they're very quick to um you know basically take opportunity away from these folks and in the past couple of years They've even tried to close the river completely, as I said before, to to people wanting to fish for, um, you know, steelhead trout and char. Uh, not this year, but the year previous, they closed the entire Killam system, meaning you couldn't go up, you know, to one of the lakes and and troll around a dock sproutly trying to catch a trout, uh, because DFO was doing something meaningful to protect chinook salmon. Well, hey, here's here's what should happen. If I was if I was in charge, this is this is the way things would go. Um, they would, they would. Uh, if there's not a conservation concern, you would look at, you know, each of the stakeholder groups, and you would say, hey, okay, well, we're going to try and give everybody their fishery. And if we're periods of low abundance, then within that fish, those fisheries, we need to find ways to make the numbers work. And so when they look at it, and let's say you have a run size of 50,000 chinook, and and let's say they decide that, okay, well, we have 50,000 chinook coming back, um, we're, we're trying to have exploitation of Maybe no higher than thirty percent we're going to give the in river fishery that they, they talk in pieces at Dfo um, we're going to give the in river fishery five hundred pieces or a thousand pieces. now, what do you do with your five hundred or a thousand pieces? Well, you can do it a couple of different ways. Um, if this was the East Coast, and this would be you know the really simple solution when it comes to harvesting fish, when you got your license, you get those plastic tags. Uh, Maybe you'd get five of them instead of 10. You, you hit your fish over the head. You put the plastic tag in It's analog. It's beautiful. You can't cheat it. You know, it's, it's there. Uh, Maybe they say, Hey, you're allowed one fish per year and the rest of it's catch and release. Uh, Maybe they, they do something super radical like monitor the catch and release fishery and and allow for a certain number of encounters. So hypothetically, let's say that there was going to be no killing of fish. It was a, a 500 fish uh, mortality that they would be allowed. Well, that means you're allowed 5,000 encounters. So if uh, if they're out on the river doing krill surveying and, and they, they say, hey, you know, we're, we're getting close yeah. to 5,000, then they can shut the fishery down. But that's not going to happen because they're not going to catch that many. Um, so what makes the most sense is to have a bit of a blend. and. You know, 10 fish per year is a lot. It really is when you're talking about Chinook salmon, never mind all the other stuff that you can take. Uh, if we really want to minimize our impact, you know, let, let's first, the first measure should be, okay, what do we do with with bag limits? And as I said earlier on, if the status quo is, hey, you can go fishing, but you can't keep anything, then the news is good. Okay. If there, you know, there's enough fish that Mike, you're allowed to keep one, or there's enough fish you're allowed to keep five, whatever the number is. Okay. You know, maybe there's another way to do it, too, where we go, okay, well, for non-residents, if a non-resident, someone who's not from BC, maybe not Canada, however you want to do it, um, if they want to kill a Chinook, you know, maybe they buy a separate tag that's quite expensive. But bottom line, what we need to be doing with our fisheries is getting the highest per dollar value per fish, right? So, you know, totally bouncing around here for a second, but you think of some of the commercial fisheries that take place for uh pinks and chums. you know these are not high yield fisheries some would argue that these fish would be better served to make it to the spawning beds and provide nutrition for all the other fish species as well why the heck are we you know sending commercial fishermen out to catch fish that aren't worth that much you know the the,
0: well the the bigger issue with those fisheries of course is your bycatch um which obviously has some detrimental consequences Uh, depending on what they're intercepting as a, as a bycatch. Uh, And I think the other concern that um, I think a lot of people have in terms of DFO's policies are the fact that, you know, uh, in the ocean or the, you know, the offshore versus inshore, uh, in the river, uh, there's a much difference in terms of your possession limits. And so there's a bit of, I guess, uh, unfairness in terms of some of that regulation as well.
1: You know, the last few years up here, have uh, have given people, I think, a slightly different outlook. And a lot of the folks I know are just want to be able to go fishing. And if they're able to keep something, that's a bonus. Um, I think the ocean folks are a little bit further behind. You know, it's going to be a while. I don't think catch and release will completely take over that marine fishery. I think that's always going to be harvest based. But, you know, would it make sense to, to have annual limits on, on species like coho? I, I personally think it would, um, but w- when it comes to DFO and, and how they, uh, you know, how they interact with the various user groups, stakeholder groups, I will say this. I don't think any one stakeholder group is, is ultimately satisfied. Certainly conversations I've had with commercial fishermen, indigenous fishermen, uh, marine People fishing in the marine environment, obviously recreational anglers on the freshwater side. <laughs> Everybody thinks DFO is really blowing it, and if you if you wade through their financials, you know this isn't a, this isn't a cheap endeavor. There's a lot of money, a lot of taxpayer money that goes into this, and I really think that you know we really we should be putting a lot of pressure on them. To, to a have some goals when it comes to how, do we, how are we going to increase fish numbers, b be hypercritical of fisheries taking place at the bottom of the food chain, meaning like herring and krill. Uh, House Sound's a great example of that. The, uh, the wonderful folks at Squamish Stream Keepers uh, figured out long ago that if they wrapped the uh, the creosote pilings with burlap, that herring would spawn successfully herring came back in house sound all of a sudden you've got dolphins and killer whales going all the way up to squamish uh, you've got good salmon fishing back in house sound um, the rivers is benefiting as well so how does DFO celebrate that well we're going to have a we're going to have a herring opening in house sound right so that you know beating up the bottom of the food chain is, does seem to be a poor tactic i think that a, a better move would be to uh to let fish that aren't valuable make it to the, the spawning grounds, and and to uh you know take the species that support everything else, meaning I.E. something like herring, and and let them flourish, right? There's no downside yeah. to that.
0: Yeah, and I think the it's interesting when you you are assuming that DFO's um, mission is to enhance or to ensure there's access to fish. I mean, certainly under the Harper government. We saw what really amounted to a war against DFO and their, the, the scientific evidence that they had collected over the years uh, through the dismantling of some of the libraries and some of the data stores that they had. And I think for that administration, and, and who knows you know what the, the, the lineage is of that in the, in the present management at DFO, um, you know certainly the energy policies of the Harper government, if there were no salmon to worry about, uh, pipelines become a much easier... Um, public uh, push get get some more support uh, to push your Alberta focused um, energy policies westward to get uh, oil to Tidewater, and it, it seems to me for some reason that uh, it, it, you know salmon are a uh, a bit of a nuisance as opposed to a resource that we see them as, um, and you know certainly if we look at DFO's history on the east coast with the cod fishery. You know I don't know that they're necessarily the bastion of uh, wisdom in terms of managing a fisheries resource.:
1: Well, you know I suppose that I don't know enough about it to to really go in hard on them, but I will say this that the whole concept of managing you know oceans on the east and west coast of the country from the center of the country, you know in, in the private sector, you just wouldn't do that. And then you have that that issue I started on with here, where you have steelhead, which are provincial fish uh, which are, you know, you're, th- that's a high dollar fishery, right? Meaning people fishing for steelhead are, are spending a ton of money. Um, and you know, what, what is the value of a steelhead? You asked me that and I, d- I didn't have the number and I said, I thought it would be close to Chinook. So let's, let's just say it's over 20,000 per fish and I'm, I'm comfortable that it is. Um, you know, what's a, what's a commercially caught chum go for per pound. And when you have fisheries, which are catching steelhead as a bycatch, um, you know, maybe DFO doesn't have skin in the game because they're not, you know, so to say managing steelhead, but they're negatively, their policies are ne- and they the way they open fisheries are negatively affecting steelhead. It's, right. it's unsettling. Um, I know you had Hooten on here a while ago. I'm a, I'm definitely someone who would be a, a Hooten fan. I, whenever I have questions about salmon and steelhead, he's, he's one of my first phone calls and you know, Bob, Bob's, been there and done that when he ran the the office here in Smithers, you know, dealing with DFO and getting them to, to ease back on, you know, trying to get them to ease back on, you know, sockeye fisheries, which were heavily subscribed and, you know, were taking place at a, a time of peak migration for Skeena Steelhead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll uh, throw this out there. I mean, if we're, if we're dealing with sort of a dwindling fish populations and and all the stakeholders are scrambling to seemingly grab what's uh, still available, uh, wouldn't reducing access uh, benefit those reduced populations?
1: If you have the idea that more anglers fishing equals more fish being caught, you might be right. But, um, you know, anecdotally I can say to you that the busiest days on the river, are not the days that that I would associate with catching the most fish. I think that, um, you know, we, we we definitely want as many people fishing as possible. We don't want them to all go to the same place at the same time and we don't want them all catching the same fish. So we need to find we need to fish in ways that don't cause a lot of fish to be caught over and over again. And this this is why it can be a little critical of bait fishing at times. Um, I recognize that you know there's a lot of folks who start their fishing career using bait and you know there's certain water conditions where, where they feel they really need it but there is no question that bait is a more successful way to catch fish than artificials. Now if we have fisheries there's a couple different ways you can manage this so let, let's say you got a river and, and and you have some fish in there and and you're going to run this fishery and uh, I'm not suggesting we privatize our rivers, Mike, but, but just for the sake of this fun little exercise, let, let's assume that, that, that you had a river and, and you were in charge of this one particular river and your plan was to make this river run like a business, meaning that the costs of, of managing the fishery were gonna be covered by the people that were partaking in the fishery, you, you dig, okay? So you know, thinking of maybe your experience of, as an entrepreneur, you would recognize that some of the people are, are willing to pay more than others and some of the people are are able to pay more than others so why wouldn't you want to get as much money as possible from the people that are willing and can afford to pay it so this is why you have some folks who are hiring guides and staying at lodges Um, this is why we charge non-residents a per day fee to to access classified waters Um, i can tell you and this is true that that 20 a day is kind of laughable to some of them because they they're paying a guide a thousand bucks a day and, and they would happily pay say a hundred. So, so they're, they're left definitely, you know, there's some skin on the bone there that, that could be, you know, easily accessed by the government if they're trying to, you know, add add, add more money to the coffers and they might need to after COVID because there's not going to be a, there's, there's going to be a <laughs> bit of a life license sale shortfall on the classified side. So here, here's your fishery, you got your river, you're trying to manage it. Okay, so there's lots of parts of the world, like, uh, you know, some of the countries I mentioned before, Uh, Norway Iceland those type of things where you have the beat system even in Canada and Quebec we have the beat system so so you look at your river and you say okay well I think I want eight anglers fishing this and I don't want them to fish more than 10 hours a day so you control the hours of the day that they can fish and you control how many people are are fishing and you probably are going to micromanage them and say hey these two guys get this section these two guys get that so you really are going to spread your pressure around my point to you is that if those anglers are good anglers, they will probably catch all the fish that are in that water that want to be caught. If it's a, a you know smaller stream, and and they'll probably be successful because of the lack of other pressure. Now, if you want it to be really progressive, and this is happening in you know fisheries even in our own country, that you have this idea of catch and release limits. It doesn't sound very fun, but it's a, but it's a good idea, in some capacity. So so it's your river. You're making the rules. You, you got your eight anglers. I think I said out there when you say hey guys all right so you each get your own section you don't have to worry about anyone low holing you you don't have to worry about these fish being beaten up it should be easy to catch them if they're there but if you hook two you're done for the day we'll see you back at the bar okay so now not only are you uh you're you're keeping your per fish hooked value very high you're spreading it around so the fish anglers coming into your river next week are gonna probably have as good at fishing as the people this week instead of these guys really getting them because the fish are here. So that's one way to manage it is, is you can control the number of people. You can control where they fish. You can control the hours that they fish. You can control how they fish. Do you have a bait ban? I bet you have one on your river there. Why not? Um, maybe you have sections of the river that there are no fishing. So there's, there's a lot of things you can do to, to ensure that your exploitation level of the fish, your catch and release mortality, if it's a catch and release fishery, if it's a kill fishery, you know, you can really control it. The problem is some of that stuff's not really fun. Meaning there's probably more than eight people that want to go fishing. Not everybody, you know, can book their fishing ahead of time. I don't like the idea of restricting BC residents. I'm a BC resident. I want to pay my license once and fish wherever the heck I want. I think most people who live here do. Um, so gosh, what do we do? Okay, well, maybe you you sort of go to this hybrid system where there's certain sections which you do pay extra for access to and maybe there's certain rivers or sections of rivers that we control the number of people that can fish at once, meaning like a booking system, not entirely unlike booking a ferry or a campground. The government already (laughs) does those things, I'm sure they can figure it out. Um, but then you also have open sections where there, there is no limit and they're just open and you can go and the fish will obviously move freely within the sections. Not a bad way to do it. You're going to collect a bunch of money from the people that are paying for those premium spots. The, the people that are, you know, fishing, let's call it the public water, they're going to, you know, they're not going to contribute as much financially, but they're important too. Or you go with what we have today. And, and I honestly favor, which is, hey, you know, the river's open, buy your license, away you go. Because I believe, Mike, that, that people, we don't need extra rules. People will figure this out themselves. And what I mean is this. If, if you go up the Copper River and you drive up the road and you see someone parked in a spot, you're probably not going to go and park behind them and go and fish the same spot they're fishing. You're going to move on to another spot. And if the places that you want to fish are very busy, you're going to go to a different river, a different section of the river, or fish a different time of the day. So I really don't think we need to, contr- to put all this, this micromanagement on, on how people fish. It just sounds really expensive. You're just one guy trying to run the river, right? Um, so with all that being said, I think education is really the path forward. And that education starts with, hey, if someone's fishing that run, in bozo, go somewhere else. And if this particular river is becoming too crowded for your likelihood, then explore some new water. And a good regulation might be when it comes to managing non-resident aliens, um, giving them a certain number of days on a particular river so they're encouraged to move around. We still want them to come for the full length of their stay. Heck, we want them to come for longer, spend more money in our country, but don't set up a tent on one run on one river for the whole time you're here. Move around, circulate. And, you know, back to your point of, of, Hey, if, if we're trying to protect the fish, why do we want, shouldn't we have less people fishing? I think that's a real slippery slope, man. I think the strength of the the BC fishery is, is that it's so accessible and that's why you see so many new anglers of all descriptions and so many, the average age of a, of a steelhead fisherman is way lower than the average age of say an Atlantic salmon fisherman. And it's entirely because of public access. And that's important. And, you know, if you said to me, hey, pick one thing, I want to talk about it for an hour, I'm going to say to you, it's preserving public access to these fisheries.
0: Now, I mean, I guess in, in, a, in a, let's say a 1970s BC world, uh, I would agree 100% with you you know, the resource is plentiful, people can go out there and, you know, even if they're simply catch and release, there's a small mortality rate. We can afford to lose those individuals from the population. Um, in, in today's world, uh, how do we minimize the angler impact as a, as a conservation mission?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, if I'm picking up what you're laying down, you're suggesting that there's, there's less fish today than there were in the seventies. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I guess it's the the responsibility of the steward of the resource as well as the users of the resource to to minimize the impact uh, as a conservation measure. And, and, you know, maybe does that mean maybe everyone takes a year off or or a couple of years off? Is that something you think would work?
1: Uh, in short, no, I, I don't think. I don't think that there, there's an upside to, to removing anglers. I, I don't think that. Our impact is is large enough to be consequential. Uh, I think in years when there's not a lot of fish, two things happen. One, you don't catch very many, if any, and two, you don't fish as much as you would in years when you know it, it's easier. Um, I, I want to just make this one point, Mike, because it's it's something that comes up a lot. Time charms the past, and everyone thinks that, you know. I was born in 73 and I just sort of envisioned that if I was fishing these waters in 73, you know, I could walk across the fish to get to the other side. And, and I just pulled up a chart while, while we were talking and this is the test fishery data. So for people listening, I, I, I just wanna qualify a couple of things. So the numbers I'm gonna kick out are the cumulative index. And I believe the multiplier that they use is 245. So what that means is if the index on a particular day is one, in theory, 245 steelhead have swum into the Skeena. And if it's two, then you're gonna have uh, 490, okay? So you, you, you times it by 245. And so what I'm looking at here is the Tai'i the test fishery data from June 10th to August 31st. And it's important to, to understand that the run goes well beyond August 31st. So this isn't the grand total of fish that have come in on that particular year and the numbers i'm going to give you are the index number so if you wanted to if extrapolate that into the actual run size estimate based on on this for that period you would need to multiply it by 245 and lastly it's important to know that that uh it the the tie test fishery data is is not the only um uh indicator of of run size it's it's supplemental to uh some fish fences and uh some krill survey data and spawner counts that the, the provincial government does. So here we go. So 1970, we're looking at an index of just over 100. 1971, it was a little less than that. 1972, we're down uh, not much over 50. 74 is even lower. 75 is right about the same. 76, it pops up again to 100. Uh, I'm gonna jump ahead here a bit and I'll try and hit some of the, the higher ones. 1982, that was a good one. The index was almost 150, just a little bit shy of 150. Paid the price the next year. Then 1983, the index was quite a bit lower. It was down at 50, so so less than half. Um, 1984 was a good one. Index hit 200. And then it, it kind of rolled along, and, and it had an, a low year in 91, and that low year in 91 was just under 50. And Then it seemed to build back up. Right up until 1998 which uh, a lot of people remember fondly and the index that year almost hit 250 in that that summertime period and the next next few years were also quite good. Um, 2000 in particular looks to be uh, almost at 200. Then we went 2002 same thing then we went into uh, you know a, a period where it was consistently around 100 and then 2010, we're back up. We're, we're almost 200 again. This is the index number. Uh, it stayed pretty good, 2011, 2012. 2013 looks to be the lowest one, and it's still over 100. Uh, 2016, over 150. 2017 was a low year that was just over 50. 2018, we're up, up over 150 again or hold up, let me just make sure I got it right. Uh, yeah, up over 150 again, but 170. So the, the point here is that there's just not this solid trend, downward trend. It, it bounces around from one year to the next. And and the trend line on this particular graph is, is angled slightly up. This goes back all the way from 1956. Uh, and this data that I'm looking at was up to 2018. Now, what you should ask and what you should juxtapose with this is what was going on with commercial fishing at the same time, because if there was a lot of sockeye fishing taking place, it's probably pretty clear to, to most people that you're going to have some bycatch with steelhead. So as an example, those years that were quite low a long time ago, like say 1974, 1975, you know, if we look at the commercial openings that took place then versus in the the early 2000s when we had some some stronger returns. But this idea of of pure doom and gloom and that you know steelhead is going down downhill it's it's a it's a narrative that's somewhat self-serving for folks that are trying to limit people's access. And uh,
0: well I, I would also interject there and say that certainly the Skeena watershed is, is probably the last bastion of uh, healthy wild steelhead populations that are uh, still making a go of things. I mean, you compare that to uh, the lower coast or Vancouver Island, it's uh, an entirely different scenario.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Vancouver Island's been hit hard and you know, that that could have something to do with fish farms. Um, that could have something to do with logging. Uh, Probably which, both. <laughs> yeah. Um, commercial fishing, perhaps, you know, there's uh, I think what we do know is on one hand, steelhead are quite fragile because they, they need, you know, essentially pristine environments to flourish. And we also know that if you put dams up or you log right down to the, the side of the river and have siltation issues uh, or if you have indiscriminate netting, you're, you're going to pay the price. But fun, funny thing, Mike, um, you know, the Skeena system is, is often touted, like you just said, the last bastion of wild steelhead. There's more wild steelhead in one river system in the U.S. than there is in the entire province of British Columbia. Um, so you know I think the strength of our area isn't so much that we have huge numbers of fish it's that the quality of fish is high and even more so we have great water so much great water to fish that everything's really nicely spread around you don't you don't have you know bad crowding issues or anything like that so the the angler experience is, is, is really at a high level and, and you know most most people who, who come fishing in British Columbia, especially Northern British Columbia, are, are satisfied with the experience regardless of, of how many fish they put in the net, if any. Um, I think we're going to see, this is, this is just a sort of another thought. I think we're going to see some of those harder hit South Coast fisheries, steelhead fisheries come back. And, and the Squamish is, is probably the one I'm thinking of the most right now. In my time there, I saw fishing definitely improve. Uh, the early nineties was a tough time to be a steelhead on the Squamish and I haven't fished it for a few years, but, you know, we, we had some great years in the, in the last decade. We, we absolutely did. And, you know, part of that is, is based on the success of, of catch and release, but, you know, and, and anglers, remember I said earlier that I felt that education was the, the best thing. You know, we can put more COs on the water, we can make more rules, make regulations more complicated. Um, but ultimately the most bang for your buck is, is the education of anglers and, and a neat trend that you've seen. Um, I think you and I are probably similar age. So, you know, if, if I look through my old collection of old fishing magazines I inherited from my father, the standard fishing photo was was a guy holding up a dead fish or, or a few dead fish spread out in the lawn in front of him. Then we kind of got into this idea in the 80s of, of you know, holding the fish up, the, the classic grip and grin, the fish is about three feet out of the water and hopefully there's water dripping off of it and now if someone posts a fish with a a picture of a fish out of the water you know people are on them so there's there's almost this peer pressure to treat fish right to keep them in the water and, and and it's not socially acceptable to to really abuse these fish for the sake of notoriety whether it be Instagram Facebook or other so you know, you've really seen this neat trend, especially amongst younger anglers to to keeping fish in the water without it being an actual law. It's just common sense. This probably can extrapolate to all levels of society where, you know, if common sense could just prevail, we need less rules. But certainly in the fishing realm, it it is a good path forward to convince people why they shouldn't be standing on reds, why they, they don't need to, you know, they should limit their catch, not catch their limit, why they should fish with you know, methods and, and gear that's, you know, proportioned to the, or that, that's well suited to the fish they're targeting, meaning, you know, they don't use giant hooks on small trout, right?
0: Sure, sure. And I, and I suppose that same extension could be towards um, implementing a province-wide bait ban in in rivers. I mean, it's, it's certainly on a catch and release fishery, the use of bait I think doesn't really have a purpose or, you know, obviously it has a purpose to catch more fish. But if you're, if the idea is to catch and release, as you suggest, we should have uh, a means of which we're less effective. And certainly there's, you know, a lot of evidence showing that uh, using bait, you're going to wind up with a lot more fish mortality, deep hookings and, and that type of thing, or, yeah. or, re, or, repeat hookings where you're catching the same fish repeatedly and, and wearing them out and their, their ability to spawn successfully is reduced.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, shifting it from, okay, well, bait's allowed, but this river has a bait ban, and this river has a bait ban, to the default is you can't use bait, and maybe there's exceptions, and those exceptions, maybe they they have to do with age. You know, older folks or younger folks on a particular uh, water might still be able to use bait, or, um, you know, people with physical restrictions, maybe they could use bait, or, or maybe this particular body of water, it's allowed, but, you know, if we can... If we can simplify the regulations so that the person going fishing understands that you know bait isn't isn't you know their 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 first move, uh, I think like you said there there's a definite upside to that and and here's a funny thing you know whenever we get the bait ban conversation comes up, there's always a lot of pushback and and some of that pushback is from the tackle industry and I really scratch my heads because anyone's trying to make money off of this you know you think they would see that hey. Take the ocean as a quick example. You know, if you're, if you're selling plugs or spoons or any of that stuff, a guy's going to fill his tackle box. Look at fly fishermen. I mean, they show up here and they've got duffel bags full of flies. They don't need that, but it's fun. And, you know, if, if, if you're going to sell someone a bucket of bait, that's one thing. But, you know, why not sell them a bunch of really expensive lures? It's, it's it, You know, to me, it's, it's a way more exciting industry that way. So it's really surprising that that, you know, the bait ban argument, let's call it an argument, has has met such resistance when, you know, if, we, if, if you're right, if we are going into a period of low abundance and, and, you know, maybe steelhead is a bit of an outlier because of catch release, certainly Chinook salmon look like we are going into a period of low abundance. Um, you know, as anglers, if we want to preserve our access, if we want to still be able to go fishing, to just go to the river and stand in the river, maybe not catch anything, um, what we need to do is find ways to lo- limit our impact. How do we or lower impact? How do we lower impact um, while at the same time maintaining, uh, you know, the highest amount of economic benefit? Um, let, let's talk I, about the Thompson for, for a second. If you're cool, sh- with that.
0: sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's actually a great segue because I remember um, as a younger man, you know, uh, chucking a single-hand rod on the Thompson and trying my best to get the line out there. And you'd have the older guys from the drift fishers association kind of coming around, and you know, hey guys, what are you doing? Like you can't catch fish that way, and and uh, why don't you join our organization and chuck some guts, and uh, you'll catch more fish. And of course, that became a very divisive battle between the the fly fishermen and the, and the gear the gear fishermen that you know and and i think in some ways that probably didn't serve the resource or the anglers well because rather than fighting for the fishery the the two groups were fighting against each other and i think you know that's almost where the province needs to step in and just say you know due to the requirements of having less impact there's simply no bait you know if you want to fish a, you want to fish a pink worm or or gooey bob or a spinning glow you Know again, I and mean, your comment on that all that is going to put more dollars into the, the tackle shop pocket than uh, than a tub of rope.
1: <laughs> no, no, it's true. And you know, that was the steelhead society at one point had a pretty good head of steam and lots of good momentum. And really jumping into that bait ban, um, uh, what, let's call it argument again because it is the bait ban argument you know, it really split up the steelhead society. And I believe that's where the drift fishing federation essentially what came from, where some of the disgruntled um, steelhead society folks who took it really personal that these, these elitist fly guys were trying to take away their bait almost as if they'd been doing something wrong for a period of time. So, you know, it, I guess at the time it probably felt like they held to die on and, you know, to look at it now and, and knowing where they ended up on the Thompson, I think it, there would have been good if people had adopted the idea early on of catching less fish, meaning there's a, there is a catch release mortality associated with fishing regardless of gear type. Sure. There's a science that suggests it might be a little bit higher with bait. It probably is. Um, sure. If you're an experienced bait guy, your mortality is going to be way lower than an inexperienced bait guy, especially if you're using appropriate size tackle, totally get that. But this is the thing you can't get past. If you're an experienced bait guy, you're going to catch more fish than an inexperienced bait guy, and you're going to catch way more fish than even an experienced fly fisher. And if, if one out of 20 fish that you catch is going to die, or maybe it's one out of 10, it's probably somewhere in between those two numbers, but you're catching 40 or 50 a year, well, you're having an impact and you can't deny that. And you, you have to be okay with it. And the, maybe you're okay with it because you spend a lot of money at hotels or restaurants or or bars or, or maybe you feel that it's, it's you know it's, it's a good thing for your health or maybe you feel that you're a steward of the resource. However you justify it is totally okay by me. You don't need to you know you don't need to figure that out that's a personal thing. But what we do need to do is, is find a way to to make sure that you know we can still fish when Fish numbers aren't that strong. If we want to be able to continue fishing, because that seems to be that seems to be the battle of the day. And to look at the Thompson, which is now closed. If anyone doesn't know this, you can't go fishing at a Thompson anymore. It's been closed, I think, for four years now, or something like that. Uh, closed due to low returns, right? And yeah, I, th-
0: I think the returns for uh, uh, for the last for last year were something ridiculous. Like, uh, what do we get to? Um, Somewhere in the two hundred, low two hundred numbers from yeah. uh, his, historic sort of seven, to five to six thousand um, returners at like, uh escapement levels. I mean that's a, and then if, you know, if we if we just sort of skip to the the Chilco River, I mean we had about five thousand at one point, and we're around fifty at this point. So those are some pretty pretty catastrophic uh, declines. Yeah, and I
1: mean on one hand, the accuracy of those of those counts could 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 be held in question, but you know the redeeming quality is they've been doing that is the same way for 40 or 50 years. So from one year to the next, it should be, you know, relevant. Uh, if I was in charge, here's what what I would have pushed for on the on the Thompson. And this this is maybe too progressive, but it's uh, I think it, it it's definitely interesting. What I would have said is that you should be able to still go fishing there. You just can't use a hook. That's weird. Right. right? So, so you and I can go fishing there and we'd be out there skating these flies on the surface and these fish that never feel a hook in their mouth would get all excited and maybe they'd come up and try and eat our fly and we'd get all excited and you know, we'd enjoy it. And it's nice, you know, nice day out, good excuse to get out of town. And we'd eat in the restaurants and we'd stay in the hotels and we'd have a drink in the bar and we'd burn some gas to go up there and we'd buy some flies at a tackle shop, you know, All the good stuff, you know, so far as, um, you know, social and economic benefits of, of angling would still be in place. And most importantly, Mike, the tradition of going fishing would still be in place. And if fish numbers come back up, and hopefully they would, we would have a pretty good feel for it because we'd be out there, we'd be in the river. We'd be like, man, there's a lot of fish coming up to these flies you know we we'd really be in touch with what's going on and if this situation doesn't change and and those uh, those Fraser tribs are closed you know forevermore for 20 30 years you you're, you're going to skip a whole generation of people who aren't going to have that tradition right and that that's the fun of the fishery the fun of the fishery is reconnecting with other people who share that passion and You know that's all lost right now, and I don't think that we're gaining that much because even those guys fishing with bait who were successful and catching a lot of fish, you know, they're not the reason that those the the returns are so low. It's part of the thing. Everything's part of it, but you know, taking us away, you know, that's not going to fix it. What we've lost though is we've lost we've lost eyes on the river. Think of this for a second: poaching what stops people from poaching? Well, what stops people from breaking most laws is the fear of getting caught. Okay. And most of the time when a poacher gets busted in this province, it's not because there was a seal hiding behind a tree and caught him. It's because a law-abiding angler like yourself called it in on the rap line and then they responded to that. Or maybe you took a photo, however it was, you know, it was reported by someone else on the water who saw what was going on and If you take those law-abiding anglers off the river, it's really easy for poachers to get out and do their thing, okay? Now, maybe some people on the law enforcement side might argue with me and say, well, if there's no anglers on the water at all, if we see someone on the water, then they must be a poacher. Well, guess what? Poachers know the river better than you and they've got their spots and they're usually spots that they can park close by and they've got a good reason for being there. And, you know, this happens all over the world. This is maybe the oldest profession, who knows? Um, the poachers are pretty slick. And if there's no anglers out there, it's not going to take them too long to catch their fish. So, so Mike, if you wanted to be a poacher, I'm sure you right now, you could think of a good spot on the Thompson that you could just slide in there at 5am at daybreak, get a couple fish, throw them in the trunk of your car and you'd be off. No one would be none the wiser, but you probably wouldn't do that because you're a good guy. And And you certainly wouldn't do that because you'd hate to, you know, you'd hate to get caught. That would be embarrassing. So I think what stops people from doing dumb stuff in a lot of cases is, 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 you know, the fact, social license, not, not the fact that there's a rule against it. So, you know, I think you remove the anglers off the Thompson, maybe they'll never be back. You've hurt the, the the local community there from a financial standpoint, really took the wind out of their sails. Um, You've, you've, completely erased any chance of of, you know new stewards of the resource having the tradition of going up there and and what have we saved if you know if you've got a run of a couple hundred fish do you think they're all going to get caught what what percentage of those fish are going to get caught and if we went with my crazy idea and and I, I think it was Paul Beck who first mentioned it I didn't come up with this myself many years ago but this idea of a hookless fishery you know you still go out there you still put the gear on, you still buy the gear, you know, you're, you're, you're participating, you're accessing the land, you're exercising your right to, to be on the water, and your impact is so stinking low, it doesn't even count.
0: Well, I think the important part of that is that without the anglers, there's no stewards, there's no advocates for that resource, and, you know, another five years passes with nobody on the Thompson, and all the old fellows will be crusty and forgotten about, and and no one will be, uh, you know, demanding a change or, or demanding the conservation efforts required to bring those fish back or, or to, or, you know, or hopefully bring them back. <clears throat> There'll be nobody, you know, who else is talking about uh, steelhead on the Thompson, if not for the, the, the folks that are enjoying that resource. And it's, that's, I think um, that's the important thing of having people on the water there. Uh, of course, in addition to the other reasons that you raised, you know, the, that, you know, especially in the fly fishing side, I mean, that's been a very long history and tradition of uh, conservation and being part of the resource and advocating for the resource.
1: Yeah, you know, one other thing too is uh, I think the angler effort is very valuable from a scientific standpoint. And I, I don't think DFO or the or the province does a, a great job right now of, of of krill survey data of anglers on the water. I think that, you know, looking up here on the Skeena specifically, you've got the Thai test fishery and, and hey, the Thai test fishery is one of the biggest killers of fresh, of freshwater salmon, right? Cause with more than half of those fish are probably going to die and cause they're coming out of a gill net. So to find out that the run is low, we're killing a bunch of fish to find out and confirm that the run is low. When the other alternative would be if you let people go out and fish catch and release, but you had two guys in a boat that could be students, right? Um, what a great summer job, by the way, sign me up, drive up and down the river and, and talk to people and find out if they're catching anything, you know, this, to me, this is more valuable information than a, than a gill net and if you have both, you know, you, you could say, okay, well the Thai test fishery is indicating we've had a strong push of fish. And yes, we're seeing that off the bars of the people fishing and letting fish go. Okay, we we feel that the run size is better than what we anticipated. Now we're going to be able to open it up, you know, and this, this is that idea of abundance based management. You don't at the beginning say, hey, this is the rules we're going to go by. It's 10 fish a year. You, you sort of leave it open, look at what's happening with the anglers and then adjust your plan accordingly. But people have the confidence to know that they're going to be able to go fishing and it's not just going to be a, a situation of of DFO says, okay, well, you know, our, our estimates at the beginning of the year said that we didn't have enough fish to have a fishery, so we're not going to do anything for you guys.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so Brian, what are three fundamental changes that you feel must happen uh, in BC's resource management philosophy for us to become truly sustainable?
1: Um, well, I think we need a. We need an inventory of, of what's here that, that's probably first and foremost is, is we need to understand what you know what we have here what's being taken and looking at it from a financial standpoint where the value is uh, and then, then the other thing too is you know we need to set some realistic goals. Uh, our population in, in British Columbia is increasing. Uh, the, the largest part of our population is obviously close to the U.S. border. The, some of these folks are, are fairly detached from, uh, let, let's call it, you know, Reality. the wilderness environment. The, no, the wilderness environment, right? Um, so the upside the upside is we have a whole bunch of new people who, who we can introduce to the great outdoors. And fishing is, is a fantastic way to get people introduced to, you know, other outdoor pursuits. And you know, looking at the way we've managed our forests, looking at the way we've managed our fisheries, looking at the way we've managed um, hydroelectric, some of the IPPs that we've done, uh, you know, maybe some some oil and gas stuff too. You know, th- there's a lot of it that we could do better. And and certainly, looking towards the future, we're one of the best equipped places to be self-sustainable. Uh, I, I, it bothers me a little bit when I look at, uh, you know, the amount of of wood that we're we're cutting down and how quickly we're doing it up here, um, and and what we do with that wood. And there was a period there where it seemed that logging had really turned a corner, and it was, you know, you you heard the term selective being kicked around a lot, and now a lot of the cut blocks I see. You know, they're, they're quite large and in some cases they're closer to the river than I'd like to see them. And, and, and when you get issues with siltation, there, there's some good examples of that, um, you know, fairly close to Terrace right now where, especially on on some of the lower tribs, where, you know, heavy rain will, will cause the river to silt up quite a bit.
0: Well, now, it's, it's, uh, on that subject, it's a shame too to see like in the, the, the upper reaches of the copper and uh, the higher elevation you know, the, when you drive through some of those cut blocks, the amount of waste which has been left because a lot of those are dead standing trees that are, you know, particularly the hemlock are rotten. And so there's, you know, it's some of these blocks, it looks like half of the standing timber has been left behind because it's all rotten. And I think that's, uh, again, that sort of, um, evaluation of what the resource or the economic benefit of that resource is left in situ versus pulling some of it out to be turned into fi uh, into, into pulp at, you know, a very, very low economic value.
1: Yeah. You know, hundred percent. And th- through COVID right, a lot of businesses have, have to be adaptable. And I think business is generally pretty adaptable. People are adaptable and, um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're whatever your business is you eat what you kill and if it's not working you have to do something different and when we look at fisheries management you know i would love a scenario where where the, the folks managing the fishery had to uh, you know run their whole budget off of what they were generating in license sales and then their mandate truly would be increasing license sales and the funny argument that comes out sometimes, Mike, is people say, oh, the river's too crowded. We need to do something or else people won't want to come fishing here. I always, That one always makes me laugh a little bit. And it's a common one. You hear guides, some guides will say, they'll say, oh, too many people fishing. It's going to be hard to sell trips. Well, it's not hard to sell trips and there's not too many people fishing. And if it appears that there's too many people fishing, you need to find some new spots. Um, but w- once again, if if the people in the... In the public sector, you know, who work work for government, if they were entirely dependent on on managing their fishery in a way that you know it it paid for itself, they would take a real hard look at you know some of some of the stuff that DFO is doing, especially with pink salmon and chum, which are having really catastrophic effects on other species for how they're robbing the uh, the river system of nutrients and. There's absolutely no question that a strong run of of salmon of any description will will benefit all other species, not just a fish. Everything in the forest, right? So, so why are we so why are we so quick to to vacuum them up and you know for the sale of Roe or, in some cases, it almost feels just just to you know basically create a fishery.
0: uh, that's right that's right so do you think at this point there's some fundamental changes that need to happen in the fisheries management policies as, as well as the governing hierarchies in british columbia
1: yeah i mean i i would love to see the the federal tourism minister sitting down with the fisheries minister on a regular basis and going okay well you know how do we ensure that that how do we ensure that we're we're building the number of, of visiting anglers, rather than discouraging people from coming? In. And I don't care if they're fly fishermen, I don't care if they're fishing in the ocean, a lake, or a river. But you know, tourism dollars are really important to the economy of BC. Uh, obviously, COVID has changed that a little bit, but you know, we still got people from other provinces that are coming to to our province and you know, injecting money into our economy and and for the most part, leaving with just experiences you know what a great industry you know we're not you're not waiting for that 100 years for that tree to grow back they took a photo of something and then they went home left their money here created a bunch of jobs it's fantastic
0: so what uh, what needs to happen then to ensure the sustainability of guiding and fishing tourism operations for the years to come other, other than you know pro- probably an unlikely meeting between the tourism minister and the dfo minister to <laughs> to get to get along <laughs>
1: Well, I think first, first thing is, is the confidence that that fisheries are going to be open. Right. Um, We need to get away from this, this thing that seems really prevalent on, on the federal side, with DFO where, you know, they they decide a few weeks ahead of time, whether you're going to be able to fish or not. Uh, That just doesn't work. The the province is much better by the way. And and there's some great folks working in Victoria right now, managing our our fisheries. I have to tell you that. Now, the province is split up into eight regions, and from one region to the next, in theory, the same principles will apply in how they manage the fisheries. It's not always the case, but but the folks who are the the policy makers in Victoria, right now, I think are doing a good job. Um, certainly, you know, the, the head provincial biologist and um, you know some of the staff that works there, you know, have a pretty good pretty good view on you know how our fishery should be managed and some of the, the challenges they face probably have to do with, you know, these salmon openings. So, you know, it's, it's all well and good to to look after steelhead and, and, you know, make sure the habitat's there for them. But if, if they're getting vacuumed up in in gill net fisheries, then, you know, there's, there's really not much you can do to stop that other than, you know, finding ways to, to curtail commercial fishing. Um, so or, or move commercial fishing further up the, you know, further up the river in a more selective way.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's you know, in terms of solutions on the on the commercial side. Um, I, I just read recently that uh, Belize is actually looking to ban gill nets uh, in their region uh, for the exact reason of uh, unintended bycatch uh, and the death that occur- that you know obviously incurs there. Um, do, do we need to move to more selective commercial fishery, uh, whether that's a terminal fishery or some means of you know potentially hook and line out in the out of the marine environment
1: yeah i don't know enough about commercial fishing in the ocean to 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 really have a strong opinion but you know what seems to me would make the most sense in the marine environment is to to go to more hook and line fisheries what seems to me to make the most sense in the river would be uh fish fences pound traps things like that things were you know, if you are going to release a fish, that fish hasn't been put through a, a trauma that they're not going to be able to recover from, such as what often happens with the gill net. And you know, beach seining was was something that got tossed around quite a bit, and I think it's still a, a real viable thing, especially for chum fisheries. I'm not sure why why there's resistance to it, but any, any type of any type of fishery that enable that enables fish to be very quickly returned back to the natural environment if they're not the target species should be pursued and and hopefully um, you know I, I think that the indigenous community is, is particularly in tune with with this idea of selective fisheries in the river and, and a move away from gill nets. so you know with with co-management now being more of a thing I, I think this is a definite upside that hopefully we'll see over the next few years.
0: Obviously and certainly certainly traditionally the the native fisheries were uh selective by the equipment that they were using, and uh you know the the traditional monofilament net certainly doesn't afford that opportunity and so I think you know that's if they are if they are portraying themselves as the steward of the resource and and you know the the, the children of of uh, the natural element in their and their territories, I think they should be. Taking a leadership position in making those decisions, as opposed to you know doing the simplest uh, form of, uh, of of fishing, which you know is essentially a commercial or sorry, as a as a gill net, right?
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I I, I truly believe that um, most most indigenous fishers have a better understanding of of our river system than DFO. I, I truly believe that. So. I, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic for the future. And I think that hopefully what we'll see over time is, is definitely a move to more, more selective fisheries. And I think that's not just here in BC. I think that's a a worldwide thing, Mike. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then what about, uh, the pinnipeds? We certainly, uh, it's rare to see, uh, fish without uh, some sort of seal marking or, uh, and I remember the old days of fishing on the Squamish and, you know, you get those big, uh, uh seals in there and you know you'd have a 15 pound (laughs) chum salmon trapped in its jaws and you know the uh, if you're you know hooking 30 40 fish a day and it was 20 30 of them had a gash that you were shocked that they were still swimming around
1: well if you're hooking 30 40 fish a day uh, your, your catch and release mortality is probably something that we need to talk about uh when it comes to predator management i'm probably a bit of a hippie on that one i i think that the natural environment tends to take care of that stuff, and I don't know that there's a lot of you know examples of success stories when it comes to, to, to predator calls. Um, you know, maybe this is a different situation. I, I know that these populations are higher than what we've seen in the past, um, but. I, I don't. If, if you're gonna if you're gonna ask me if if we go if I think that by going out and killing a bunch of seals we're automatically gonna end up with more salmon, I think it's more complicated than that. But I, I you know, once again, I, I don't know for sure.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's, I think given the fact that the uh, the killer whale population has declined for whatever reason, I mean that could be related to pulp mill effluent and heavy metals and God knows what. Uh, but it certainly seems like the pinniped populations have uh, escalated over the last 20 years and you know they they're certainly taking their their uh, their fair share of the resource.
1: Yeah I think the killer whale issue is probably more complicated than than a shortage of salmon and the media likes to simplify things and I think you know if I was to be really critical of DFO on one particular topic it would be how they interact with the various stakeholder groups Individually, rather than put them all at the table together, and I think it's it, it's 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 a very convenient argument to say, "Hey, these these recreational anglers are taking all the fish, so the whales are starving." I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, um, and I, I don't fully understand, you know, what the the, the decline of the killer whales um, is is in relation to you know historical numbers. I haven't looked into that to be honest with you. Uh, I, I have been told anecdotally that up here in the north, that, that killer whale numbers aren't in trouble, that this is more of a south coast killer whale thing, and south coast killer whales don't, for whatever reason, don't want to feed on seals. Uh, the the resident ones, I guess, I don't know, uh, but I'm not sure that I'm not sure that killing the seals, I'm not sure that taking the anglers off the the recreational anglers off the water, uh, is, is going to have any benefit to the whales. Heck, it could be something to do with whale washers. I don't know. You know, It could be an increase in tanker traffic. I think it's just a really complicated issue and we have to be careful by saying, hey, this is the problem, we'll just remove these guys and oh, oh wait, there's still a problem? You know, what happened? And, and now we've got, when you, when, you take away, when you take away recreational anglers, let, let's talk about in the ocean for a second. When you take away recreational anglers, there's a certain knowledge base that exists there. What they should be trying to do is tap into that. You know, saltwater anglers with 30 years on the water know a thing or two about whales, and there's information there that could be passed on. And instead, the government seems very quick to restrict their season, or or discourage them from fishing, or close them out in certain areas. And it it seems like a bit of a knee-jerk reaction versus you know trying to trying to have a better understanding of the bigger picture.
0: So uh, if, if Brian Niska was in charge of the implementation of a new fish and wildlife management strategy for BC uh, starting next Monday morning, uh, what would that uh, strategy look like? Uh,
1: no, open, open access um, in a, as much as possible, uh, lower limits, probably more tackle restrictions, basically trying to make it harder to catch as many fish and discouraging people from killing as many fish, but at the same time encouraging people to get out there and fish. And and also, you know, weaponizing that angler effort in the name of science. So you would see, you know, krill surveys taking place on on all fisheries that had high participation levels, and trying to build a data set to to really have a, a solid understanding of of what the actual impact of these fisheries were, and and also understanding the upside of these fisheries, meaning how much money is being generated, and you know, if you think about if you go around the province in your head for a moment you think about you know the storied places the places where anglers have congregated you know annually for years so the Thompson was one we've lost that that's one we've lost it's not the only one we've lost but that's one we've lost um the Vetter's is a popular fishery the Skeena is a really popular fishery um you know the Squamish in the spring uh, all the ocean stuff it wouldn't be that big of a deal for the managing body to turn around and assign a person specifically to these fisheries to be able to, you know, just on an annual basis, deliver a report and say, hey, this is what's going on in the Squamish. This is how many fish we think were caught. This is how many people were fishing. You know, the people we interviewed, this is where they were from. This is roughly how much money they were spending. And then they could break it down like like we did up here with our, our uh, guides, uh, economic impact study and say hey this is how much money is being generated i'll tell you right now mike that squamish fishery with with all the guides from whistler vancouver on it not catching that many fish but catching some really nice fish and some beautiful water that that fishery probably generates the highest per dollar steelhead of of anything in north america it really does um up up here on the skeena you know this is this is a a really unique fishery in the sense that it's it's not so confined. You know, the Thompson Fishery was based around Spencer's Bridge. Some people were down in Lytton, some people were up towards Kamloops. But if you come to the Skeena system, it's everything from Prince Rupert all the way up to Houston, right? So it's really, really spread out in a variety of communities and a variety of tributaries. It, you know, it's probably not realistic that you just have one person on top of that. But but certainly, you know, a river like the Copper, a river like the Kispiox, a river like the Bulkley, uh, the lower Skeena, you know, you should have, or they should have people out there on a daily basis doing creel surveys to see what's being caught, how people are fishing and, you know, having a better gauge for, for what's going on.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's switch gears, uh, slightly and, and, uh, explore the world of spay. Um, what makes this style of fly fishing so attractive and seductive to so many people?
1: Yeah, I think it's the casting. Um, You know, single hand fly casting is is a little more challenging in my view, and it's a little bit more rigid, you know, back and forth. And if you're teaching single hand fly casting, you know, you're constantly moving your head one way to the other, watching the loops form. Um, And one of the first things as a single hand caster, one of the first things that you learn is how to stop the rod to create the loop. And the loop will actually form when the rod tip stops accelerating in spay casting. You know, we don't stop the rod on the back cast, it's fluid, and you don't tend to use your arms to generate load. You're turning your body and you're you're making these movements, which you know you're in these positions that are kind of rigid to begin with, but you're blending them. So what I mean by that is regardless of what type of of cast you're doing as a spay caster, so you know a gazillion different casts you could do, but let's just pick one. Uh say a single spay, you know, you can break each cast into How it starts, which is with a lift. They all start with a lift. You lift a little bit of line off the water. You you make a move to set your anchor. Your anchor is basically where your line is gonna contact the water. And in the case of the single spay, that move is really subtle. It's it's just uh, an actual turning of your hips. And you you essentially load the rod at that point. The rod's gonna take a bend. Load is a fancy way of saying a bend, saying bend. This is what happens in the sweep. The sweep is when we turn into the back cast. But instead of stopping the rod we allow the rod to drift up and then we transition all that forward so so it's a really fluid motion it probably has more to in common with a golf swing than a a single hand fly cast and when you do everything right man it's, it's it's like when you're at the driving range and you just hit your seven iron perfect and the ball goes 170 yards straight just bounces off the club a really great spay cast feels effortless and from a fishing standpoint you know you're using the wind to your advantage. The wind helps keep tension on the line, which keeps load, meaning bend, on the rod. So, you know you're not you're not in a situation where you're fighting the wind. You're working with the wind, much like a sailboat. And obviously, much much has been said about the lack of back cast room. You learn to fish around the obstacles. That's key. Um, if you want to fish a heavy sink tip and a big fly, it's it's easy. Uh, it's just yeah, it's it's just fun and it's it's multi-dimensional, and uh, you know, like any any of these kind of endeavours, the, the 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 pageantry that goes with it and the tackle is is, is somewhat alluring to people, and you know, everyone's kind of got the thing that they're into, whether it's fly tyings or classic reels. A lot of folks love to fish reels that are hundred years old. Uh, some people like bamboo rods, some people like long rods and long lines throwing it a long ways. Other people want to fish where the fish are a little bit closer. You know, there's, there's so much to it. And if you're a guy who's really gets into gear, I mean, open your wallet and keep going. It's uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun collecting this stuff and learning about it. And the, the technique is evolving too. You know, we talked about Maxwell earlier on and no, No question about it. Mike is one of the guys that brought spay casting to to North America. He didn't invent it, but he was one of the guys that brought it to North America and him and Denise and Denise continuing, you know, they put a lot of new spay anglers on the water. And if you pull out Maxwell's book that he wrote, which was at the time, you know, a a very definitive work, uh, you know, now you can look at and say, okay, well, this is a lot different than the way we cast today, but you know, there was a lot of stuff in there that we still do today. And there's a lot of stuff that is in that book and with Mike's, Mike's technique back then that has enabled us to, to make some changes towards this idea of efficiency. So modern spay casting is incredibly efficient. Um, you put very little effort, physical effort into it and you get a big result and that's part of the fun.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll, a bit of, bit of a tongue-in-cheek question, but doesn't that increase the efficiency beyond what our goal is, is to uh, reduce the angler efficiency on the water? To reduce the Hi, impact? It's funny,
1: funny <laughs> you that because, because it, th- this is entirely true. The best fly casters don't catch the most fish because they throw it too far. Um, quick, quick, funny story. This is maybe like four years ago. I had a, a client here who was an exceptional caster. He was a Swiss guy. And he was one of the best flycasters I've ever seen. I know a lot of good flycasters, and and this guy was out out on the Skeena trying to catch steelhead and chinook salmon. And he was throwing these beautiful casts all over the place, and he wasn't catching a lot of fish. And at the lodge, we had a guy I think he was from California and two two young sons, never spay cast before, just getting into it. And and these are kids. I don't even think they're teenagers if I remember correctly. And and these kids were catching fish. And this poor Swiss guy was just beside himself three or four days into it because these kids who just started were out fishing him. And, you know, here he is, you know, making these huge, pretty casts. And I explained to him, it's, it's because even though the river's huge, you know, the, the fish are in, the steelhead are in two and a half feet of water. So if you're throwing it out into five feet of water, you're not going to fish as effectively as that 12-year-old who's dropping his fly where the fish are. Um, and I also think there's, there's a term that you'll hear kicked around sometimes. It's called caster baiting. And some of the clients want to cast bait. They're not so worried about fishing. They want to work on their cast. This is why they come here. And this might be the evolution of the angler towards what we talked about before, this idea of, of minimizing your impact. So you really get, into, really get into the casting and the fishing becomes secondary. And, you know, in an extreme case, you've got people um, like uh, – uh, Tim Arsenault from Michael and Young, who uh, literally one of the best spay casters in the world. Tyler Kushner, another guy. Um, you know, Obviously, both these guys are, are super experienced anglers and, and catch more fish than most people, but they love to go out onto the lake and just cast with a bit of wool. They'll go to San Francisco every year when the contest is on to, to compete at Spearama. Um I've been down there myself a few times, and, and this isn't just an isolated thing. This is all over the world. People are into casting on ponds. And they'll travel all the way to San Francisco once a year to, 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 to you know, for camaraderie and to, you know, compare themselves distance wise with how they've done previous. And it's a thing. It, that part is a sport. That, this is how far can I chuck it? And it has absolutely nothing to do with catching fish, but it's a lot of fun. And it's no. it's decent workout, too.
0: Yeah, and certainly there is uh, a certain kinesthetic magic uh, with a well-delivered spay cast that uh, is, is sort of like, I don't, I don't golf, so I, your analogy of, of th- uh, swinging the, nine, the seven iron means nothing to me, but there is something when, the, when the, lo- the, ro- the rod unloads perfectly and the line dashes off across the river in a tight loop and, and everything comes together beautifully, it's, uh, it is something, there's, there's a kinesthetic enjoyment with that that's unquestionable.
1: Yeah, man. And, and hey, you know, that, that's the other part of it is I talked before about the anticipation. You really like the water that's in front of you and and it feels like you're going to get one. And, and, and lo and behold, when a fish does grab your fly, but when you made a really nice cast <laughs> in that moment, that's that's the whole thing.
0: That's um, even better.
1: Oh my, Yeah, it's, you know, you don't need a lot of that to keep you coming back, right? You don't really don't need a lot of that to keep you coming back and chasing it. That's right.
0: Uh, so, Brian, if you could go back in time and speak with yourself as an 18- or 20-year-old young man, uh, what advice would you have for that young fellow?
1: <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, probably to, to, to eat healthier. Okay, This is, this is, this is true. Eat healthier. Probably would have spent a little bit less money in nightclubs probably would have put some money, more money away to save for the future instead of uh, worried about, you know, the, the the present. But overall, I would have probably just said, man, it's it's going to be okay. You know, don't wor- don't worry too much about things and just stay the course and, you know, s- try and stick to the stuff that makes you happy and, and, and things will be good. And, you know, speaking to fisheries, there might, you know, everyone talks about, about, oh, you know, doom and gloom. You know, we're, we're running out of fish. Uh, I don't think that's really the case. The fish are going to be there. They're resilient creatures. What we need to do is if we're going to interact with them in the way that we have been and come to enjoy, i.e. fishing, we're going to really need to find a way to, to do it in a responsible way that's sustainable, where we're minimizing our impact, and at the same time, you know, doing it in a way that, that makes sense from from a financial standpoint, meaning, you know, how do you justify essentially torturing something? This is this horrible way to say it, but how do you justify putting a hook in a fish, pulling it in for your own enjoyment to someone who doesn't fish because they don't know the other stuff that goes with it? What they see is you holding this fish with the hook in its mouth, and then you let it go. You're not you're not going to eat that fish. Some people are going to have a problem with that, and how do you, how are you okay with that? Well, you need to you need to look at it and understand your own impact. and And I picked on you for a second there about your 30 or 40 chums saying, "Hey, how many of those were going to die?" But Do we need rules that say if you catch two fish, you have to go home? Or does that just become something that people do? They go, hey, I've had a good day. How does this get any better? Um, Our chef here at the lodge the other day, this is a good story. Our chef here at the lodge the other day, went out for the morning, make a few casts, caught a fish right away, reeled up. It's not gonna get any better than that. You know, he went out and caught a fish right away. As he was walking out, another guy was walking in. He said, hey, I caught a fish. I, I didn't go below this spot, the rest is yours. Came back with a big shitting and grin on his face. What a great morning! Um, would it have got better if he if he like pounded through the run in front of this guy because he was there first? No, nah, no, nah, it's about no, yeah, it's just it's about sharing it, man.
0: And, and just to touch base on those chum, there was definitely a few that came home for the smoker. But that was uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's about twenty years ago now. So, <clears throat> um, uh, and so, what's been your greatest challenge in life, Brian? and, and how did you overcome that challenge?
1: I don't know if I've overcome it but I I think it's procrastination and maybe it comes from part of me wanting to be a bit of a perfectionist and and on, on some level you're always thinking of, of hey you know if I can't do this exactly the way I want to do it right now I'm just not I'm not going to bother. And I think this this kind of goes into how anglers and this is a disappointment for sure how anglers um, engage with the people that manage our fishery. So what I mean by this, Mike, is DFO has a, a thing called the Sport Fish Advisory Board. And, and this is this is how they they engage with their stakeholders. Uh, on the provincial side, they call it the SAAT up here, Skeena Angling Advisory Team. And I, I think a lot of folks are like, hey, I got to do something for the fish. I want to do something for the fish. So what do I do? Well, maybe I'll be a member of the Steelhead Society. Um, may, maybe there's a, a Trout Unlimited or something I can join. But because they don't know exactly you know, how to have a meaningful impact, they just don't bother. In their mind, they want to do something, but they just don't bother. So that's kind of like procrastination. And what they need to realize is that if they just went to the meeting, if they, if they just went to the meeting, what they would find out that DFO Sport Advisory Board will give the individual angler who keeps showing up at the meeting the opportunity to vote. And that individual angler can then – you know, help sway policy decisions. And we'll be sitting at the table voting alongside, you know, the representative from the the the, the BC Drift Fishing Federation or the, the BC Wildlife Federation or the Fly Fishing Federation. So just showing up, just, just showing up is, is, is really more than half of the battle. But a lot of folks just don't understand, you know, how do they get from A to C, they got to go to B first. And they just got to show up at the meeting and say, hey, I, you know, I want to I wanna see what this is all about. And I have concerns. And this is the best way for me to get the most up-to-date information and say, hey, you know, these are the changes that we want to make. So when I think back to myself as someone who has struggled with procrastination, both on a personal and professional level, um, you know, just taking that first step, is, is so key and just because I don't know exactly uh I- exactly how I'm going to build the barn shouldn't stop me from starting the process.
0: Yeah well said um and then if we uh if we look at uh the Skeena Bay Riverside Wilderness Lodge what are your organization's strategic pri- priorities moving forward?
1: Yeah you know it's uh it, it's always been about educating anglers so there's there's some of the lodges up here which are out there for dawn patrol you know they're what they sell is, hey, we'll get you to the water first. Maybe what they sell is we'll catch more fish than anyone else. We've never gone that route. We focused primarily on a comfortable angling experience. You know, we tend to do breakfast at 7, dinner at 7. Um, meals are just as important as the fishing. And you know, education, the educating anglers, you know, especially casting. We get a lot of folks who come here wanting, like I said, caster bait. They just want to really become skilled casters um we get a lot of folks who are beginners or just want to you know catch their first steelhead and and we tend to do really well with that uh we probably get more couples than any other lodge up here because the place is comfortable it's it's a nice vacation for the family uh and now i think our, our focus it's always been something we've we've gravitated towards but especially now with the domestic clientele is is becoming more than a fishing lodge you know so not everybody you probably want to go i'd I'd want to go fishing fish five six seven days in a week in a row but not everybody wants to some people want to come up and fish a half day and and go do something different and i think what you'll see us doing over the next decade is is trying to add in other experiences that are in line with with our values here uh and and because of that we're going to have people sitting around our dinner table who've been out horseback riding or maybe mountain bike riding or you know, a variety of opportunities, recreational opportunities that exist here in the the terrace area. And, you know, this will become kind of a hub for them and we'll try and get them all into spade casting. And, you know, hopefully the the dream would be, you know, you got the family of four and the dad's already drinking the Kool-Aid. He's into it. He's, he's hoping that his wife and his kid, it might take, but you know how we started this conversation, your, your idea of the fishing gene, not everybody has it, but you don't know unless you try it and you don't know if steelheadings for you, until you do it and then go away from it and then come back. And this is especially winter steelheading, man. You know, standing out there and being like physically uncomfortable and catching nothing is a totally different experience than being out there on a nice summer, sun, sunny summer day and catching nothing. But to be out there with frozen fingers and frozen toes and, and and feeling like, you know, this is not hopeless, but this is a very unlikely thing that you're trying to do. Yeah, that's not for everybody, but the people that like it like it a lot.
0: Yeah, much really, different much different scenario than uh, waiting the flats for bonefish.
1: Yeah, it's like communal suffering. I think that's maybe a part of it, you know. The late in the fall and the winter steelheading, coming back in from a day on the water and, you know, getting feeling back into your, your digits in the hot hot, hot tub of the sauna or whatever is yeah, and then sitting around the dinner table and talking about how you've gone two or three days without a bite. I think I think people really like that. But, you know, the longer you go without a fish, so maybe someone works three, four days to get a fish. Man, that feels great when you finally get that fish versus, you know, getting a bunch in the same day.
0: Yeah, well, I think it took me about 10 outings on the Kalem to, uh, to get my first steelhead. I had a, had a, couple, uh, a couple on, but it was uh, uh, between the horrible slippery boulders and, and some <laughs> of the crappy backcasting spots. Uh, it felt very accomplished once I got my uh, first one to hand.
1: Yeah, it's, it's cool. eh? When you put the effort in, it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, so, Brian, how can people get more information about, uh, about you and, and your organization?
1: Yeah, um, our website's pretty simple. It's skenaspay.com And okay. uh, my cell number is actually on the website. They can call or text me or if they just want to talk fishing.
0: All right, excellent. Well, I'll get that in the show notes. And um, it's people, if they want to touch base with you, they'll have uh, means to do so. Uh, any Any closing thoughts, Brian?
1: No, I think we you know we bounced around we covered a bunch of stuff uh, you know ultimately, I guess where I, what I would like to see everybody do is is take a good hard look at what their own impacts are and, and try and find ways that always try and find ways that they can minimize those and and at the same time fight really hard to preserve wild fish and 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 their ability to you know to to participate in this 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 great outdoor recreation that we have at our at our doorstep
0: yeah in, in a truly spectacular part of the world excellent all right sir well thank you so much for your time um if anything else comes up in in the future please uh, feel free to reach out and we'll uh reconvene and and uh uh tee up again another episode um but for now i think uh we've covered everything that we need to and uh thank you very much for your time and we'll be in touch in the future sir
1: Hey, right on, man. You uh, you have a good trip when you're up here. I know you're coming up here in a bit.
0: I shall. Thanks so much, sir. Have a good night. night. Ciao. Bye-bye.